This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 2nd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. We've strayed a long way from the founding vision for adjudicating crimes. Government has, over the past two centuries, absolutely rigged the process. At the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit held last month, Cato's Clark Neely details precisely how the deck came to be so stacked against average Americans, and he offers some hope for a way back. Uh, As a baby public interest lawyer uh, working uh, at the Institute for Justice, the first real public interest case I ever had was uh, actually in Las Vegas, challenging a Las Vegas limousine monopoly. Uh, And I ended up having to go to Vegas about once every month. And uh, it's a fascinating place, full of people who've made some horrible choices with their lives. but one of the things that's really fascinating about Las Vegas is it has a bunch of micro-economies. A lot of things are going on in Vegas that aren't necessarily going on in other places, or they're just they're more overt in Vegas. Um, and one of the most fascinating economies to me is the casino economy. And it's, uh, one of the reasons it's fascinating is because they figured out a way to get people to voluntarily sit down at a table and play a game that will, to a mathematical certainty, cause them to lose money. So how do they do this? What they have is each casino game has a set of rules that is optimized to produce a particular result. And that result is to attract people to come and play the game voluntarily and lose money. Uh, And I think that's rather fascinating. So um, that's what the casino is seeking to do. And we have a set of rules that is also seeks to optimize something. We have something called the Constitution, which is really, in some sense, a rule book. And what does it seek to optimize? What it seeks to optimize is the right amount of government. You have too little government, that's anarchy. Don't want that. Too much government, that's tyranny. And you don't want that. But just like casinos in Las Vegas could game the rules. What would be one way to do that? I like to play blackjack. Excuse me. What would be one way to do that? We'll just pull the aces out of the deck, right? That would be one way. We would call that cheating. There's another way that they actually do use at casinos in Vegas. They give you something for free while you're playing. Does anybody know what that is? It's called alcohol. It impairs your judgment and makes you think you can do things that you really can't. Like beat the house consistently. Uh, And that is arguably a form of of gaming the system. So the thrust of my talk today is to convey that we have this wonderful uh, rule book that is really, I think, the greatest secular document ever written. But it cuts against something that all governments throughout history have wanted to do, which is to maximize their power, right? And you could think about, I guess we're doing movies, so we could do Jurassic Park, you know, with the raptors. The raptors are constantly, constantly pushing, right, up against the fence. Uh, And that's government, just constantly pushing and trying to expand its power. And, of course, one of the problems is that a constitution is not self-executing, right? You see a government official exercising more power than the constitution allows. You can't just kind of go up and go, you know, the power of James Madison compels you. Get out! (laughs) So... (laughs) How do we enforce the Constitution? Well, we have an adjudicative process. It could be in court. There are other adjudicative processes. But it's a way for a citizen who believes that the government is exercising more power than the Constitution permits to push back. And we're really one of the few countries in the world that, at least on paper, um, provides pretty significant access uh, to citizens to an adjudicative process uh, in order to push back against the illegitimate exercise of government power. I have been a part of that process for most of my professional career, coming up on 25 years now. I'm here to tell you something a little bit depressing, but don't worry, it's going to be fun at the end. Um, The government has absolutely rigged 
that process. Uh, I took my son, who some of you saw earlier at breakfast, he's upstairs playing video games in my office, but um, took him to Myrtle Beach uh, last summer. He wanted to go on an exhilaration vacation with just me, so I got a list of things he really wanted to do, which included parasailing, trampoline park, roller coasters, mini golf, uh, and one more thing that escapes me right now, we did it all. Uh, and um, at the amusement park, he uh, saw that one of the um, one of the games, you know, the carnival games, uh, one of the prizes you could win was a stuffed pug. And my goodness, that's his favorite uh, dog in the world. So we had to sit at this game until he won a pug. And man, I paid for that pug, let me tell you. Uh, but what he um, didn't necessarily realize, but I did, is that those carnival games are rigged. They are made to look fair, but of course they're designed in such a way so that you are going to lose. And guess what? That's American adjudication. When you get into uh, an adjudicative process against the government, you are likely to lose, not because you're wrong, not because the Constitution uh, actually permits the government to do what it wants to do or it's trying to do. It's because the government has been so successful in rigging the adjudicative process. So I'm going to tell you more about that um, right now. What is the um, probably the most common forum in which a citizen squares off against the government when the government seeks to exercise power. Well, it's probably the criminal justice system. There were about 12 million arrests last year, 80% uh, of them for misdemeanors. I leave it to you to think about whether that really seems like a good allocation of resources, but put a pin in that. Uh, and so that is one forum in which citizens are going to square off against the government. Does the Constitution speak to that forum? Yeah, a lot, actually. Um, if you look at the Bill of Rights, more than half of the Bill of Rights uh, con consists of, of a detailed explanation of how to properly resolve criminal charges. Um, and I'm just going to quickly role play with my friend uh, Jeff Singer here um, how it actually looks. Right. So look at the Bill of Rights. You know, you get uh, you get a right to counsel. You get a right uh, to a, a, a jury in a public jury trial. Um, and so, Jeff, uh, you're um, you're in the. Uh, uh, pain relief space, right? And that's a pretty fraught space for doctors to be. There's some government interest in that space. So let's say that I'm your friendly U.S. attorney. I've charged you with crimes uh, related to prescribing opioids. Um, you know you have a right to go to trial, right? Yeah? Would you like to exercise that right? <laughs> You're damn right you don't. Because why? Because you did it, didn't you? You did it. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. No, I didn't. Where's your wife, Jeff? You know, she hadn't paid taxes in a couple of years. I'm going to put her in, too. 98.3% of all federal criminal convictions last year came not from constitutionally prescribed jury trials, but from guilty pleas. They don't use a baseball bat, but they do threaten your family. And they can absolutely, for example, threaten uh, you with life in prison. That's an actual Supreme Court case from 1978, Borden Kircher v. Hayes. Uh, Paul Hayes was a small-time uh, uh, you know, check fraudster in Kentucky. Uh, he got caught. The prosecutor uh, offered him a five-year plea. He refused. He wanted to go to trial. The prosecutor said, oh, well, in that case, I'm going to go get a superseding indictment. I'm going to charge you as a habitual criminal. And you're not going to be looking 10 years max, which is what you're looking at now. You'll be looking at life. Paul Hayes went to trial, got convicted, and he got a life sentence. That's our system. And the Supreme Court said it is, it says it is perfectly fine. What is another setting in which citizens square off against the government? Um, it's in the news a lot now. 
um, for good reasons that I'll get to in a moment. It's administrative law, right? Going in front of some agency, some agency that says you can't build a house here because it's too close to a puddle, right? Um, or you don't have the kinds of the right kind of uh, safety railing on whatever that is over there, those steps, you know? And, and so uh, citizens are constantly being dragged before these agencies uh, to uh, answer for their conduct or seek some kind of permission. And it's unbelievable how rigged the adjudicative process is when you get into it with an agency. And I, I don't have time uh, to do chapter and verse. I'll just give you one little factoid. Does anybody know what an administrative law judge is? Yes, sir. What is it? Yeah. So, so if you get prosecuted by an administrative agency, let's say the SEC that says you're into some financial shenanigans or whatever, the prosecutor, the person going after you will be employed by who? The SEC. The administrative law judge who decides whether you are guilty of whatever it is that the SEC prosecutor is charged with, who's he employed by or she? The SEC. Does that sound like a process you want to be part of? No. Fortunately, you do have a right of appeal. Do you know who you get to appeal to if you lose in front of the administrative law judge? His boss. <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. You get to appeal to the commissioners of the SEC. It's, it's ridiculous. So that's another uh, rigged process. And then I spent most of my career as a constitutional litigator uh, in a third rigged process that I, again, don't have time to do full justice to, but it's constitutional adjudication. So if you want to do something and the government says you can't do that thing on paper, yeah, you have the uh, right, the legal right to go into court and challenge that. Uh, but the basic way that the, uh, the, the government has rigged that process is that it has persuaded the Supreme Court to embrace an absolutely insane conception of, of the Constitution, which at risk of oversimplifying is this. It's the idea that we have two distinct categories of rights. You have what the Supreme Court calls your fundamental rights. Those are your important rights. And then you have what the Supreme Court calls your non-fundamental rights. And these are your unimportant rights. Jeff, what are some of your unimportant rights? Can you, can you think? Well, according to the Supreme Court, owning property is one of your unimportant rights. Uh, being treated fairly as a taxpayer is an unimportant right. And your ability to earn a living and put food on your family's table by working in the occupation of your choice is one of your unimportant rights. And what is the distinction besides the terminology? Your important rights, which are just basically a little small handful, I could read them all pretty much in five seconds, free speech, free religion, a couple of others. Those rights get meaningful judicial protection. The government needs to have a good reason for interfering in your ability to speak or worship. Um, but that's, again, just a really tiny little subset of your rights. Most of your rights, according to the Supreme Court, fall into the unimportant category. The ones that are not entitled to any meaningful judicial review. And you get a farce called rational basis. I'm the Captain Ahab of the rational basis test. Find me later if you want to talk about it. You don't. Um, but it's just it's a fraud and a charade. It's not real. Uh, adjudication. It's like that carnival game. Um, I got to credit my wife, Nikki, by the way, who is, was working for Cato when we met. She came up with that comparison. Um, and most constitutional litigation is a rigged carnival game in the sense that it's designed to look fair, but it's rigged so that the house wins. All right. Pretty discouraging, no? Well, fortunately, you're at Cato, not somewhere else. So the rest of the talk is going to be what we're doing about it. And we can fight back. We don't have to take this. And we're not. We're not taking this. Uh, one of the things that's going on right now, as I mentioned a moment ago, that's very exciting is that the Supreme Court has, for whatever reason, decided to get involved in pushing back against the administrative state. And we are in the thick of that. Um, 
and we're, we're very happy to be there. I kind of think of Cato when it comes to uh, uh, all kinds of, of, you know, sort of uh, legal efforts, but especially administrative law. Um, I'm going to mangle two metaphors here, but I think of Cato as the, basically the, the snowplow on the pickup truck of the Overton window. We are, are filing briefs and writing articles and giving presentations to show judges and others what a principled application of law would look like in this area. Now, we know you're not going to do that. Supreme Court is too far to do really principled law, but you could do half principled. We would prefer all the way over here, a principled, but if you just want to do half, that's fine, but we can show you the path. So we're pushing that Overton window um, and giving the court space, hopefully to go the full distance, maybe one day, but we know they're not super comfortable with that right now. But when the window is so big, they can just go halfway and feel like they've accomplished something. Well, good, halfway in this case, halfway in another case, halfway in another, what's that, Eric? Zeno's paradox, right? There we go. Sorry, I should have practiced that with you. <laughs> we'll get that right next time. Um, and so we're making enormous progress really fast on administrative law. Uh, you had uh, the West Virginia versus EPA case um, where, you know, certain people think that basically the entire electrical power generation industry ought to switch from, uh, you know, from fossil fuels to renewables at no small cost. Congress so far has not said that, that, that that's, you know, their program. But then what? Obama just said, well, let's just do it anyway. You know, why should we have to wait for Congress? And then Biden came along and, and uh, there was a pause during Trump. Biden came along and kept pushing it. Well, the problem is, of course, that's a policy. And, uh, you know, we here at Cato have this quaint idea that only Congress is supposed to do policy, not unelected bureaucrats. And so we filed a brief in that case, arguing that the Supreme Court should embrace this um, new kind of legal paradigm called the major questions doctrine. Uh, the thrust of which is really quite simple, which is if you are going to uh, uh, implement some massive policy like forcing the entire electrical generation industry to switch to renewables, you ought to have clear authorization from Congress, and you don't. And the Supreme Court embraced that theory, and that's going to be huge. Um, again, I, I won't try to enumerate all of the ways in which the, uh, the courts are pushing back against the administrative state, but it's happening. The momentum is building, and we are right there again, sort of the, uh, <laughs> the snowplow of the, uh, the Overton window, and it's a great place to be. Um, another one, uh, when it comes to constitutional law, we're pushing hard uh, to, to continue uh, you know, the work that Roger and Ilya did, articulating the basis for both enumerated and unenumerated rights, destroying this false dichotomy uh, between fundamental and non-fundamental rights, persuading judges to get engaged and realize that any time uh, the, the government interferes with your freedom, it has to have a good reason, not just sometimes. Um, and that's uh, uh, important and gratifying work. Um, as Sally mentioned, uh, a lot of my focus right now um, and, and my colleague Jay Schweikert, uh, we have an audacious plan to resurrect the criminal jury trial as the default mechanism for, for resolving criminal charges in this country. That's a heavy lift. And guess what? We're going to get it done. Um, and I'd be delighted to tell you uh, what our plan is, uh, uh, either during the Q&A or after a couple of drinks tonight. <laughs> um, and then this last one is one I'm really excited to share with you because I... I don't know where we're headed, but I have a really good feeling about it. Um, and it's the implications of artificial intelligence for empowering individuals to push back against overweening government. You've heard of chat GPT? Well, get ready for lawyer GPT. What do you think the world is going to look like when ordinary people have access to a, a powerful AI program that enables them not only to make good arguments, but to navigate all of the complexities of a legal process that would baffle? I mean, I've litigated civil forfeiture cases. I have a law degree from a pretty good law school and a lot of experience suing government bureaucrats, and I could barely figure out 
how to uh, file all the things that need to be filed. And do you think that's a mistake? Does anybody think that it's a mistake that it's really complicated to try to get your property back when it's been seized through forfeiture? It's not a mistake. But now imagine that people are equipped with this incredibly powerful tool, lawyer GPT or whatever we're going to call it. Uh, I think that could really be a game changer because now instead of maybe 1% or half of 1%, or you know, it's probably one-tenth of 1% of people who've been wronged by the government pushing back. What if it were 10%? What if it's 50%? Now you got Leviathan playing whack-a-mole, and that's a pretty fun image, right? That's going to slow them down, and that's going to make them stop and think real hard before they decide to cavalierly violate people's liberty. Now, here's, here's a question. If this comes online, which I think it probably will, is the government going to try to discourage it, frustrate it, prevent it? You're damn right it is. And who's going to be there with a constitution and a plan to make sure they fail? We are, with your help. <clears throat> Clark Neely is a senior vice president for legal studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.